Chris Garlock here with this week's Labor History Today. On this week's show, part one of my interview with Jeremy Brecker, the historian, documentary filmmaker, activist, and author of books on labor and social movements, including the classic strike. Patrick Dixon talks with history professor Sarah Rose about the Americans with Disabilities Act and the complex history of disability and work. Jordan Biscardo, communications director at the Seafarers Union, tells us about the 1946 general strike that shut down the U.S. maritime industry. And our labor history object of the week is the cover of the September 1949 edition of the American Federationist, depicting the first Labor Day march. Thanks so much for joining us. Enjoy the show. In part one of my interview with historian Jeremy Brecker, the author of Strike, Globalization from Below, The Power of Solidarity, and History from Below, How to Uncover and Tell the Story of Your Community, Association, or Union, talks about the relevance of labor history to our lives today. All right, so Jeremy Brecker, uh, thanks for being on Labor History Today. It's a real honor. Um, I have to tell you that uh, there there are, are basically no books that I read every year except for Strike. <laughs> uh, That's great. It's a constant inspiration. So I, I had a couple of, of things that we wanted to talk about. Um, you know, on, on Labor History Today, we not only explore and celebrate the history of workers' struggle, but specifically, we're always looking for the links to today's uh, battles. And that's because it seems to us that for a lot of folks, history is, is something in the past and it's not connected to the present. And I wanted to get your thoughts on this. Well, I guess the key thing is that, uh, uh, of course, as human beings, what do we, how do we know how to live in the present? Well, we have to look at what happened in the past and what people did to, to see. And so it has an immediate relevance from that point of view. And in the case of labor history, uh, most people really have no access to our uh, history as working people. Uh, it just doesn't get represented on the television when they study history in school, if they study history in school, which is uh, e even 
that is a question these days, but uh, they learn almost nothing about uh, the history of working people, the history of strikes, the history of unions, history of worker organizations, what people have tried to do and what's worked and what hasn't worked. And those are all things that are tremendously relevant to today. Uh, and I'll give just one example of uh, the way that history uh, can be drawn on by working people uh, to think about their own situations and what might be solutions to them. Uh, and it's not a story of history that came from a history book, uh, but in the recent strikes by uh, teachers, uh, and specifically, uh, I'm thinking about uh, West Virginia, um, the, many of the teachers were from families that had been uh, coal miners and had been union coal miners, and there are numerous accounts of discussion, and some of the teachers themselves actually uh, uh, had been had been coal miners as kids. Uh, discussions within families and within communities about the lessons of the uh, coal unionism and coal strikes, and what people should learn from that uh, that they could apply to the teachers' strikes of the last couple of years. Uh, including very specifically the fact that the miners and, uh, created their own organization for a political purpose to get state legislation to protect workers uh, from uh, the effects of black lung disease, a terrible uh, miners industrial illness. And they had, in fact, created this. They'd done a statewide strike uh, and... Uh, shut down the coal mines and forced the state legislature to pass legislation funding clinics and programs uh, and other protections uh, for miners with black lung. And that was for at least some of the people who participated in the big uh, teacher strikes. Uh, the idea of uh, okay, if we all sit together and make this a statewide thing, we can force the legislature to act. So that's just one little example of the relevance of history and labor history in particular to today's struggles. Well, and it was interesting because in a, in a previous podcast, I think it was Joe McCartan who had noted that um, uh, a very specific thing was that the teachers, uh, certainly in West Virginia, uh, wore red scarves, which was a very specific, uh, in fact, I had forgotten uh, about that, but that that was a very specific uh, connection back to those very same uh, coal mine strikes uh, that you just talked about. Right. Yeah. So that's, that was, that was interesting. That was really, as you say, very, very uh, conscious. Now, an another interesting thing is that you know, this is, you know, labor history today, uh, but, you know, obviously, and certainly in strike, I mean, I think one of the things is I think a lot of folks would think, oh, strike is all about, you know, union strikes, but in fact, it's not. It's really about, you know, worker struggles more generally, right? Uh, yes, and one of the interesting things in the uh, example that we've just been talking about with coal miners in Appalachia 
they uh, had uh, faced a situation where the union had become uh, both uh, in some ways very weak, but more importantly, uh, very much under the domination of the coal operators, the employers, and uh, refused to strike, refused to protect workers who were victimized on the job, and uh, almost became a, uh, an, a, a vehicle for coal uh, management to impose its will on the miners and the mine workforce. And so they developed a whole range of ways of dealing with that. One is the independent organization uh, that uh, was the uh, Black Lung Association, uh, which uh, some of the miners referred to as our union away from the union. Uh, and also the coal miners developed a tradition of wildcat strikes in which they uh, organized on, on their own and would strike and the union officials would come and order them to go back to work <laughs> and uh, they would just ignore them and say, you, you don't represent us uh, and we're going to act on our own. And uh, there was a somewhat similar, though not as extreme, experience with the uh, some of the teachers' unions in the uh, strikes, uh, teachers' strikes in recent, in the last couple of years, uh, where they did not support the idea of a teacher's strike. They didn't, especially did not support trying to operate on a statewide basis, uh, ignoring the different uh, organizations and the different locals. Often the teachers' unions were divided, as so often American unions are divided. Uh, and part of what the teachers carried forward from the legacy of the mine workers is if you're organized and you can cooperate with the people in the other districts in your state, you can act on your own and make your own decisions, uh, even if the union is not giving you leadership and backing. And that happened quite a lot. Uh, and there were points at which the uh, state legislature made offers for people to return. Yep. Uh, and uh, the unions uh, uh, told their members to go back to work. Uh, and the workers just said, uh, I'm sorry, but that's not what's going to happen. Uh, we're going to stay out till we win what we're what we're uh, aiming to get, and what we need, and what our students need, and our communities need. And they, in fact, stayed out and eventually forced the legislatures to grant them uh, their their practically their full demands. And another aspect of that is that uh, the unions, in some cases. Uh, we're, we're saying, well, we're representing our members, and so we're not going to uh, fight for the demands that the teachers have made that uh, uh, other people who work in the school systems, the janitors and the teachers' aides and the school nurses and the librarians, the teachers, when they went out, they said, we want raises and we want improvements and conditions for everyone who works in the school. Uh, including all those other people who aren't classified as teachers that we work with every day. And the one of the parts of the the 
proposals that the state legislatures made was to divide those people up and say, well, we'll give the teachers a raise, but we're not going to give a raise to the librarians and the janitors. And one of the turning points uh, uh, and and critical uh, successes of the strikes was when the teachers said, I'm sorry, but that's not what's going to happen. We are going to stay out until not only every, every teacher and everyone in the teachers union gets a raise, but all the people who work in the school system. Uh, so that's another example of they're taking uh, lessons from history and using them to figure out how to make their their actions much more powerful and much more effective uh, than they would be uh, if they had just gone along with sort of contemporary uh, standard practice uh, of, of this era. Hi, this is Jordan Biscardo, Communications Director at the Seafarers Union, calling from our headquarters in Camp Springs, Maryland. On this day in 1946, a general strike began throughout the U.S. maritime industry, stopping all shipping. The strikers objected to the government's post-war National Wage Stabilization Board order that reduced pay increases already negotiated by maritime unions. After eight days, the board approved the increases, and the strike was called off. Next up, Patrick Dixon talks with Sarah Rose, Associate Professor of History at the University of Texas at Arlington, and the author of No Right to be Idle, The Invention of Disability, 1850-1930. The Americans with Disability Act passed the U.S. Senate on September 7, 1990. Okay, well, welcome to Labor History Today. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Thank you. So we're going to talk about uh, labor and disability today, and you've written much about uh, Americans with disabilities and how they've occupied a unique place within the national consciousness in, in terms of citizenship. Can you explain that and how that evolved over the last century or so, please? Yeah, sure. So people with disabilities are in this odd position historically in that historically they've worked. But increasingly, from late 19th through early 20th century on, had their work not count as actual work. It was considered rehabilitation, or they were not paid the same wages and couldn't access mainstream jobs. And to give, like, Owen such an, a one-minute summary, um, basically, people with disabilities were pretty integrated in the workforce, Prior to the early 20th century, um, people worked at different levels of productivity. So you could be elderly or have an amputation or chronic illness or be a kid, and all of those people worked. And there wasn't a black or white definition on one person was productive and one person was nonproductive. And for a few different reasons, that changed right around the turn of the 20th century. Um, ideas about efficiency and mechanization led employers to start pushing out older workers and workers with disabilities, but also particularly workmen's compensation laws unintentionally created incentives for insurers to say to employers, screen out everyone with a disability, from varicose veins to heart problems to one eye missing. And so it became really hard for people with disabilities to get jobs in a mainstream paid workforce 
the 1920s. So there's this weird dynamic that then results where a lot of policymakers and charity people are basically very aware that people with disabilities have trouble finding work, but they blame them for it, not the larger legal and policy problems or cultural attitudes. And so this is a very gendered workforce at this time. I mean, when, when isn't it? But um, is that reflected in the way in which men and women with disabilities are treated too? Yes and no, um, in certain ways. Um, so depending on the type of disability, often people stay involved in what were called institutions for the feeble-minded or people involved in rehabilitation, um, which really emerged around the turn of the 20th century. They thought women with disabilities needed to work as well because obviously they weren't going to have kids and shouldn't breed. Um, so sort of eugenic ideas in many ways mean that women with disabilities were pushed into the workforce, again, not necessarily paid. Um, and at the same time, there is, like, male breadwinner ideology really does shape workers' compensation policy. Um, it shapes who can get support for rehabilitation after World War One. It's much harder for injured nurses to get rehabilitation. Um, so there's this odd dynamic, again, where people with disabilities are treated fairly similarly, whether, whether they're men or women. But, of course, the kinds of injuries and disabilities that people acquire tend to be quite different because of the gendering of the workforce. So it seems men had a lot more amputations, any eye injuries um, from pieces of steel that might break off. Um, and then women were really particularly vulnerable to occupational illnesses because they were funneled into light industrial work that often had lots of chemicals. So um, there's a really famous incident of the radium girls where women were painting dials on watches and they weren't told, don't lick your paintbrush. And so they started getting cancer in their jaws, and their jaws started disintegrating. And they'd been hired because they were thought to be neater and more controllable as workers. Mm, I see. Now, I understand you've looked closely at Goodwill, which is quite a significant employer in this, in this sector. So... It, so Goodwill Industries started in the late 19th century and was really just, it came out of the 1890s depression and the idea of repairing clothes and having people sell them is, is very long standing with Goodwill. Um, it, and then when it started focusing on people with disabilities in the 1910s or so, um, one of the really, and the interesting things I think about Goodwill Industries then is they totally adopt efficiency logic used by mainstream employers. So people with disabilities were not allowed to be drivers. They were not allowed to do the field work that let people transition out of Goodwill. And instead, they got a wage, but it was a very low wage. And they got stuck in a sheltered workshop 
And that's really continued in a lot of ways with Google Industries. And I'm not saying that some of these sheltered positions are not meaningful for people in them, but under the Fair Labor Standards Act in 1938, it became legal to hire people with disabilities for basically permanent rehabilitation at sub-minimum wages, and in some cases, under a dollar an hour. And that's still allowed in a lot of states today, and there's been a lot of activism against Goodwill Industries and some of the other sheltered workshops that don't actually transition people out often and that are making are, are making a lot of their business off the fact they can pay people with disabilities very, very low wages. Now, I understand the Americans with Disabilities Act uh, is designed to transform the nature of life and work for many people with disabilities. That passes the Senate in September 89. It's signed into law in July 1990. Given the historically marginalized uh, status that you've described, how is a powerful enough coalition able to be constructed to see this become law? That's a that's a huge question. <laughs> well, there have been a number of organizations working on the ADA for um, many years, and a very broad coalition in the 80s working on it. Um, the American Coalition of Citizens with Disabilities and others. Um, it's citizens from Texas. It's actually, a lot of the leaders were from Texas. Um, Oddly enough, with lots of disability history here. Um, but Justin Dart was a Republican, um, as many of the leaders of this fight for the ADA. He traveled to all 50 states, surveying people with disabilities twice in the 80s. Um, he had polio, Lex Frieden, who's still alive, based in Houston. He led the effort to actually draft the ADA, also a Republican. And Really, it was very much a bipartisan effort. In some ways, it was somewhat conservative um, in that it really focused on fitting people into the labor market um, and not necessarily addressing some of the longstanding reasons why employers discriminate against people with disabilities. And in fact, the employment provisions were gutted by the Supreme Court in the 90s um, so that Effectively, you could be fired for needing epilepsy medication or for wearing hearing aids, but you couldn't file a claim that you were discriminated against. So that led to 2008 ADA Amendments Act, which substantially expanded the ADA and restored the employment anti-discrimination provisions. Um, and where the ADA has really been successful is much more in public space and to some degree telecommunications and technology. So, for instance, my students today, they were born after the ADA um, in most cases, and they're used to having people with disabilities in public space. So I'm hopeful that things might gradually improve, but right now, until very, very recently, for the last year or two, it, the employment rate had actually gone down among people with disabilities. 
convince the passage of the ADA, and it's currently 70% of working-age people with disabilities are not employed. And it's not by their choice. It's very, very hard for them to get jobs. So just as we come to a close here, uh, considering where we're at today, do Americans with disabilities face a whole new range of unique issues, or is it many of the same historic issues that you've described? I think to some degree things have changed, although we have to see how much more the Trump administration undermines and sabotages the Affordable Care Act. Um, healthcare was actually left on the t- negotiating table during the passage of the ADA, and that's crucial for people with disabilities. Pre-existing con- conditions and protection against being discriminated against those by employers, potentially, also crucial. And so the Affordable Care Act really seems to be increasing the rate of employment because it decouples health insurance from employment. Um, so in a number of ways, it makes it more accessible. Um, I think employers, in many ways, still really have the early 20th century idea most, but not, say, Ford Motor Company shared, that people with disabilities don't are inefficient and they aren't good employees. And there have been a number of efforts, including by the government in World War II, to change that. But I hear people who apply for 400 jobs or get told in an interview, when they show up for an interview, that they were asked for, that the job's been filled just a day later, once it becomes clear that they have quadriplegia. Unemployment is really tied to the high rate of poverty among people with disabilities. But, you know, having public spaces accessible makes a huge difference. It's a stepping stone. We have a long, long way to go. Thanks for joining us today. Glad I could join you. Our Labor History Object of the Week is the cover of the September 1949 edition of the American Federationist, depicting the first Labor Day march. The Federationist was the publication of the American Federation of Labor, and in honor of Labor Day this week, archivist Ben Blake brought it out in the George Meany Labor Archives at the University of Maryland College Park. Yeah, so... Oh, this, oh, it's 1949. I thought it was, uh... This is actually pretty cool. Whoa. All right, what are we looking at here? Well, um, it's a cover to the American Federationist magazine, which was the official publication of the, uh, this is 1949, so it would be the official publication of the American Federation of Labor. And uh, it's a September 1949 issue, so they're featuring Labor Day, and it looks like uh, there's so that's so, an official notification of the library closing. But yeah. we don't have to pay any attention to that, do we? <laughs> Absolutely not. I've got the keys. <laughs> <All right. laughs> so um, yeah, the um, it looks like a work of art. I'm not sure who the artist is. It's it looks like this is printed as a separate little poster. Um, well, go ahead and describe it because I mean, to me, it almost looks you know like a Norman like a Norman Rockwell knockoff. That's that's sort of my take on it. Uh, I don't think it's Rockwell, but it's got that same sort of classic Americana feel to it. But let's go yeah. ahead and describe what we're looking at. 
Yeah, so um, I think this would be depicting the um, probably the first mm-hmm. Labor Day march in 1882 in New York City. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think that's um, right. So this is on the cover of the American Federation. So it's it's sort of it's commemorating the history and the founding of the uh, the Labor Day holiday, the first Labor Day holiday, and so you have a group, uh, a long march of workers, and uh, it's a street scene in the city. Um, you have groups of workers on both sides of the street, and it looks like here in the corner you have somebody. It looks like they're representing the bosses, uh, very well dressed in a top hat, kind of looking on. Uh, not too happy. Kind of, kind of looking down his nose, actually. Yeah, 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 with his cane and everything. Um, but then you have the workers, and actually, it looks like one worker is not quite sure. He's motioning to the fellow uh, that is well dressed as a boss there, and uh, yeah, and right above him, there's a sign right above the worker, which I've I've seen. Um, there are no photographs, of course, of the first one because they, but I think they have engravings uh, mm-hmm. from that one, uh, and and you always see that this is basically the scenes that we've seen. Um, I think it was in maybe Tompkins Park or something uh, mm-hmm. in, in New York. But this is, of course, those are in black and white, and this is in color. Uh, so it's interesting. But there's a sign right above the worker which says, Labor creates all wealth. And I remember seeing that sign in the engraving. So this, this to me, looks like it was probably sort of uh, based on that engraving. Oh, great. Um, uh, not so sure about the American flag. That looks like it might have been added. <laughs> I'll have to go back and check the original engraving. Yeah, there are quite a few flags here, it looks like. Yeah, there's one, There's about two, eight three. flags. Yeah, a lot of, <laughs> yeah, definitely strong in there. I got a happy, so, a happy looking dog there and sort of, uh, sort of onlookers, well-dressed onlookers and, uh, and the police sort of standing, standing by. Yeah. So this is this is something, and it, it uh, uh, would have been um, maybe sold as a as a separate piece or as a proof. It's kind of hard to tell. Yeah, yeah. It looks like this probably what we've got here. I think you're right. Is probably a proof just because it's not centered, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, it's possible that it was made as a poster too. Um, right, it says the first Labor Day, so it sort of that has a sort of a posterish look that people yeah. would have put up. All right, thanks, Ben. Okay, thanks, Chris. Now the lessons of the past will all learn with workers' blood. The mistakes of the bosses we must pay for. From the cities to the farmlands and trenches full of mud. Cause war has always been the bosses' way, sir. Come on! Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. Labor History Sources include Today in Labor History from Union Communication Services. This week's labor music includes a cover of Billy Bragg's There is Power in a Union by the Street Dogs, an American punk rock band from Boston, Massachusetts, formed in 2002 by 
former Dropkick Murphy singer Mike McColgan. As always, we hope you've enjoyed this week's edition of Labor History Today. Please spread the word by liking us on your favorite podcast app. And if you'd like to contribute a Labor History item, and we hope you do, just shoot us an email at laborhistorytoday at gmail.com, and we'll send you details on how you can be part of the podcast. It's easy, it's fun, and pretty cool, too. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening. Keep making history, and see you next week. Together we will stand